Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Today we have Raj Patel, the renowned political economist and New York Times bestselling author of The Value of Nothing, alongside physician Dr. Rupa Maria, to offer a radical new cure, the deep medicine of decolonization with their new book titled Inflamed. Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Gear up for a thought-provoking, provocative, and controversial conversation today. Raj Rupa, welcome. Thanks so much for having us, Jason. Hello. It is great to have you both. Such an important, provocative book. And I'm going to start with the title. The title's Inflamed, so we have to start with inflammation. And so what what I thought was so interesting in the context of inflammation, in the book, you talk about immunity and the different types of immunity, which I thought were fascinating. So can you walk us through type 1 immunity, type 2 immunity, and then followed by type 3 immunity? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just give you an overview of what inflammation is. So we know what we're talking about when we're talking about the immunity, different types. So inflammation is uh, a response of the immune system to damage or the threat of damage. And it's the way our body corrects itself or restores our optimum working conditions, a state that we call homeostasis. And it's an evolutionarily conserved response. So it's been around for a long time. It's preserved in different animals and we have it in humans. And it helps us when we are confronted with different stress, such as a cut to our skin. We see acute inflammation or the stress of running away from a, a bear. There's this, the stress response and uh, inflammation response are actually very intimately connected using a lot of the same cellular mediators. And so when damage is ongoing, as what we talk about in this book, inflammation continues unabated. And we get the rise of what we see as these chronic sterile inflammatory responses. So you can see inflammation in the setting of an infection. And the type immunities, type one, two, three immunities that you just referred to are the ways our immune system has adapted to address different kinds of organisms that we live around. For example, type 1 immunity is activated when there's an intracellular bacteria that has gotten into the body and the body is trying to deal with. So you have the activation of a whole host of cells and mediators that that confer that kind of immunity. Type 2 immunity we see when there are uh, worms present. So helminths, you also see that activated in the presence of Um, venoms. And what that does is activate a whole other host of cells um, of the immune system that respond to that, to those organisms. And type 3 immunity you see with extracellular organisms or fungi. Now, the problem that we see in modern industrialized people, because we have been so separated from the web of life around us, our whole society has been structured through enlightenment errors that got exported from Europe to around the world that somehow supposed that human beings were not a part of nature or a part of the web of life. And what we're seeing that is, in fact, we are completely a part of the web of life and we need the web of life in order to have a healthy immune response or inflammatory response. So people who are raised in places where they have lots of exposure to rich microbial and other creatures Um, don't have the kinds of inflammatory disease that we have. 
For example, cancer is what we now know is, is, is an inflammatory disease. And people, when I was going to medical school, we learned that the bacteria Helicobacter pylori causes stomach cancer. So when you find stomach cancer, you find Helicobacter. Helicobacter also creates uh, Helicobacter pylori also creates peptic ulcer disease. So it creates an inflammatory condition in the stomach. And what we see is that the rates of H. pylori infection in the United States, let's say, are really high in people with low socioeconomic status. So you see a lot of Black Americans with H. pylori infection, and those Black Americans have get have a higher rates of gastric cancer occurrence. But when you go to Africa and you look at Black Africans, they also have a really high rate of H. pylori infection. However, their rates of gastric cancer are much lower. And what has been postulated as a, a reason that this is happening is because those folks are exposed to more organisms like worms or helmets that tone the immune system to not react to the H. pylori infection with inflammatory changes that we see here in the United or in industrialized societies. In addition, the social oppression of Black Americans also creates pathways of inflammation that make that encounter with that organism more threatening for that body. And so that's what we really look at in the book is how social structures around us, which also include the way we've excluded organisms or others from our concept of social structure, are predisposing our own bodies to a hyperinflammatory response or a dysregulated immunity. So type 1 and type 3 immunities give rise to autoimmune diseases when it's dysregulated. Type 2 immunity gives rates rises in allergic diseases that we see. Diseases where you'll see a rise in eosinophils, so asthmas and eczemas and eosinophilic esophagitis, these kinds of conditions. And so what has been fascinating about our book is understanding how it is the interrelationships of ourselves, our bodies, and the entire web of life around us that is somehow changing how our bodies are responding, and that those fractured relationships that we see in industrialized societies have been broken through systems that were brought through colonialism and the capitalist architecture that was put in place. So there's so much to unpack there, and, and something you're hitting on is inequality, and Something else, I, another great statistic from the book I thought was fascinating, eye-opening, scary, the connection of financial debt and cardiovascular health. And the book says that having more debt is associated with 17% greater risk of high blood pressure and 15% higher risk of, of having a stroke. Wow, that's... And you know, the bigger the debt, the more stress you're under. And, you know, particularly if you're taking payday loans, for example, where, and listeners may not know this, but, you know, when you take a payday loan, you borrow $200 and end up paying five and $500. And uh, over a very short period of time, so an APR of 800%. And 
that stress, particularly if you needed that money to feed your family or just to be able to make rent so that you, you, you don't become unhoused. When you can't make those repayments, that's you and your family hungry and out on the street. And that's an immense amount of stress. And uh, w- you know, one of the things we found was uh, that if we wanted to the rate of accidental fatal overdose uh, in the United States by 8%, then banning payday loan- loans would be a fantastic way of doing it. This is a medical intervention to reduce the consequences of stress in our body that would also, in passing, reduce suicide rates by, I believe it was 4%. So just by treating the social system around us, we can dramatically improve our bodies, particularly for those who are at the very sharp end of poverty and injustice. So something else that was very interesting with regards to community was a section on community immunity. And that there, there was this large-scale study that found that French French people who said they consumed organic food had lower cancer rates than those who did not, and also eating less, 30% fewer calories than normal while maintaining a healthy level of nutrients can, re, can revitalize the immune system. And, and those are, you're talking about Africans living in the US and Africans in Africa. To me, I, I went to diet. I think this is interesting because these are changes on the individual level, but I'm curious, can you elaborate a little bit the community role here as you think about these changes? Well, yes, I mean, I think COVID makes this example. So it's nice if I can eat organic, but it's better if everyone can, because when folks' health is compromised through a toxic food system, they're more predisposed to things like COVID, for example. So if bodies are in a state of poor nutrition, they're not going to be able to fend off infections or just be healthy. And I think part of the problem of the wellness world is that there's such a focus on the individual and there's not at all an understanding of how individuals are connected to one another. And so that logic of individual health and wellness is part of a colonial mindset that somehow we can be healthy without others being healthy. And I learned a lot through this by marrying a farmer. So my husband is an an organic farmer and he is putting his work to use to liberate food for people who don't have access for to healthy organic food. And what he taught me is when we'd be in the garden and our tree was covered with aphids, I'd say, oh my God, the tree's covered with aphids. What do we do? And he's like, oh, we just give it some compost. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, don't we spray it? Don't we actually do something to the tree? And he's like, no, we just give it compost. We just give the tree health at the roots, and then the soil will take care of the tree. And sure enough, within a week, everything was in balance. And it was a very different way of thinking about health, because our pharmaceutical approach to health is if something's missing here, let me give you the supplement to fix it, as opposed to something's missing, let me create the conditions around it for the body to thrive. And not just the body, but the whole community to thrive. And in so that way, community immunity is making sure that everyone has the access to eat organic food and that no one is being forced to pick vegetables that are being toxically sprayed by these poisons that have been reappropriated from chemical warfare and put on the soil. So that not one of us is not healthy until all of us have the opportunity to eat well. And that's like taking the wellness world out of its narcissistic belly gazing of seeing that, oh, well, I'm well and I juice and I do yoga and understanding that is not going to help the planet or help anyone except for that one person. And no one can be healthy when 
so many people are sick. And if COVID hasn't run that home to everybody, I'm not sure exactly what will. So this is a great time to understand what community immunity means and how we can support our own health, eat well ourselves, while also dismantling toxic systems so that everyone can have the opportunity to eat well. So this idea of connection is something I love. We love here at Mind Buddy Green, and, and you reference the South African term Ubuntu, which I first learned about from Dr. Frank Lipman, who we've had in this podcast many times. He's he's family. He's my personal doctor, and he's from South Africa. And Ubuntu is part of his shtick. He talks about it all the time. Can you do a recap of what Ubuntu is for those who aren't familiar and talk about the role you believe it plays in our well-being? Well, so, so Ubuntu is a Bantu word. Bantu is the language group that many folk in Southern Africa use. And Ubuntu is just the idea that I am because you are. And it's, it's an idea of mutuality that recognizes with gratitude that we could never become were it not for the gifts that other people have given us. And it, it manifests itself, a recognition of this manifests itself in a, you know, a couple of different ways. I mean, for example, if you're having a meeting in South Africa, you better budget about half an hour, depending on the number of people there, uh, for you to just go around and shake everyone's hand right? You, it's just, it just takes a while because you have to greet everyone. It's considered just unthinkable that you would spend time in the same room as someone and not get to know them and not seriously ask how their family is doing and whether they are well. Because if you don't know if they're well, if you're not taking care of people in the room, it's unlikely that they're going to be taking care of you. And that idea of deep caring, of a, a really a, a deep understanding, not just of who's in the room, but who they are connected to and how they are connected, not just to one another, but to the places that they're from and to home, Kumusha, wherever the idea of, well, obviously you're here in city now, but you know, how are the people back in the village? All of that matters. There's an idea of history, an idea of biology, of the soil and of our relationships to one another right now that are all bound together in the idea of Ubuntu. And so, although in English we say, how are you? And you'd be like, oh, fine, how about you? In, in, in South Africa, for example, that's a very serious political, ecological and nutritional and health question because so much as we're discovering through the writing of Inflamed depends on answering that question honestly and at length. Well, as you pointed out, if we're, if we're doing yoga and drinking green juice and going on our Peloton all day long, and we're not having real meaningful IRL connection, as I think we've learned through COVID, one, it's not good for you. It's unhealthy. So, so I would argue you're negating all that good stuff you're doing, but two, it's not good for the collective. It's not good for humanity. And you ultimately suffer. Like we're speaking, if, if I'm just in it for me, if I'm the, you talk about wellness being a little bit narcissistic it actually isn't good for your health to be solely focused on you and not the community, right? Yes. And then we have to think of like what we mean by community. And you'll have these eco utopian communities set up in Costa Rica on stolen land of indigenous people making their ecotopia, but then driving up real estate prices. So people who are Tico can't afford their own land. So we have to be very conscious about what it means when we say community and who do we ascribe is in the community and outside of the community. And what we found in our book is that, that 
that humans are really evolved. We've evolved to be very deeply interconnected, not just to one another, but to the whole living world. And that it took um, a lot of social engineering through capitalism to sever our connections and care to one another, to divide and conquer us. And so it is really an important time to think about how do we deal with COVID when we're vaccinating the global north, we leave the global south to its own devices. Here comes Delta, now it's here. Now the now COVID is, and now the idea that we're gonna get past this is disappearing at, at every moment because we didn't define our community broadly enough. We didn't open the 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 aperture of healing to bring in as many people as possible. And that is a great lesson as we go into accelerating climate crises. Who can, who is, who's going to be coming into the circle to be safe? How do we define that? And so, and then how do we define the resources and how resources are allocated to keep people safe, especially with the migrations that are already underway with climate refugees, with these wars, with the dearth of water around the world, we're going to be seeing a lot of movements of people we already are. And so how do we define what that community is? And how can we be as understanding that in caring for the other, if I am because you are, that philosophy of reciprocity really serves us, us well in these times to reconnect with those uh, and uh, without going down the COVID rabbit hole, but we will talk a little bit about it. I, I'll use lockdowns for an example. I don't think this was intended, but lockdowns disproportionately hurt at-risk BIPOC communities because you know if I'm more affluent and I have a job where I have the ability to say, all right, I can work from home and Zoom versus I'm making deliveries on a bicycle or I'm a cab driver or an Uber driver, I don't have that luxury. So I'm out there forced. So it, 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 and I don't think that was the intention, but um, that happened. But coming back to COVID, I'm an optimist. So I, I think it's, I'll timestamp this interview. It's September 13th. It'll air on the 15th. So hopefully not too much changes in the next 48 hours, but it's we live in a new era. You have to talk about the respiratory system. What can we do as individuals and collectively to protect our respiratory system? Well, the first thing we can do is abolish the fossil fuel industry, which has set the world on fire. So collectively, that's a good place to start. Shut down line three and start building the green um, energy economy now, not in five years, not in 10 years, but right now. Looking at those communities that are most impacted by air pollution, start shutting down those industries as well. So industries have been given free reign to pollute our air. And if you look at COVID and where it's hitting the most severe, it, it's hitting in places that are very suffering from air pollution chronically. So people who are chronically exposed to PM 2.5 have a much harder run of COVID when they get it and a higher likelihood of getting COVID. And we're seeing the same thing with the wildfire smoke. There's data now that shows that it's traveling on the smoke from wildfires. And that if you're exposed to wildfire smoke, your likelihood of having severe COVID goes up. So we need to stop the world from burning. And that means taking the power away from the corporations that have here in California decided where our water goes, as opposed to following the fish or the riparian corridors that need the water. 
it's being allocated to these agricultural projects that make no sense in today's world. Like we should not be, you know, spending our water and money and time creating alfalfa for China when we need to feed our communities and when we need to make sure our waters are safe. So it's a great time to start rethinking how to prevent the dust problems in the Central Valley of California that will improve our respiratory health, how to reallocate our water, how to um, break up these industrial farms and put them into the hands of um, small to medium farmers to practice agroecology to help clean the air. These are all solutions that will have a direct impact on the respiratory health of the people. And I think about that and you're like, oh, well, what tea can I drink? That's helpful. But if we look at this in terms of the smoking ban, let's say, when the public smoking ban went into effect in California, we saw rates of fatal heart attacks and strokes drop in ways that no medicine that has been devised in uh, modern times has cut those rates. It was a public health policy that said no more public health smoking, no more smoking in public. And so we need those kinds of strategies where it's like no more fossil fuel inputs into our food system, no more tilling of the soil that releases and aerosolizes all this crap into the air, no more ABNI foundry here in East Oakland that's putting hexavalent chromium into the air and pushing our our industries to move towards electrification, but not in but in a new way outside of a capitalist ideology. Well, also uh, during all of COVID, there, there been a lot of PSAs on, we're not going to get into the vaccination route, but go get vaccinated, do this, do that. But no one really mentioned, hey, eat more vegetables, or you need to get some exercise. The, the two major risk factors for poor outcomes with COVID are, are age and obesity. And it seems like as a country, politically, we failed on the obesity front at all during COVID. It wasn't mentioned at all. Well, uh, I- but Jason, I mean, we've all come to understand the sort of potency of the idea of comorbidities. But it's important to remember that those comorbidities were foisted on uh, certain Americans very intentionally through the food system. But these days, I mean, it, it's important, I think, to understand if we like the market system, then markets work best when they allocate resources in a way that reflects the full social cost. The trouble with capitalism is that it uh, creates a divide between the private costs and the social cost. You know, uh, you know, very briefly in sort of economic speak, um, there are things called externalities, things that, that corporations don't pay for when they produce whatever food, for example, we, we eat in the United States. And to give you a concrete example, in 2019, Americans spent $1.1 trillion on food. But the, the amount of damage caused to the environment and to our bodies by this food system was $2.1 trillion. So you know, almost double the private cost of food is the damage that our food system causes. And that damage doesn't fall innocently just distributed, sprinkled across the United States. It falls particularly on communities of people of color and the working class in the United States. Well, yeah, 100% agree. I think, you know, for, for example, we subsidize corn and corn syrup. And so we, the government determines what is reasonable. If we subsidized spinach, we could make spinach a lot more without going down. (laughs) But but we're subsidizing unhealthy foods, which disproportionately end up in poor BIPOC communities where this is what they can afford. So they don't have, one, it's, it's access, and then two, it's resources to actually 
purchase the right type of food and education as well. But but that's it. I mean, I do think it's the access part is often forgotten in this story that, that seven out of the 10 worst paying jobs in America are in the food system. And so people most likely to be least able to afford the right kinds of food are the ones working in the food system most exploited by it and usually disproportionately women and people of color and this just goes to the story that you know we're we're all agreeing with here that this system is and it is rigged in order precisely to be able to help us sweep over the problem of obesity because actually that's the system working as it should low-income communities being given trash not being able to have the right kinds of access to food because our our system is subsidized not just through the billions uh, that we give through the the farm bill, but actually more so through the normalizing of oppression and that and the normalizing of these you know vast gifts we give to the to the food industry of our children's minds, our letting these corporations off scot free when they pollute the water and pollute the air, and that's the kind of systemic transformation we need if we're very serious uh, about embracing you know, community green health. And then also with regards to diet and exercise versus a vaccine. So of the obese patients I treat that are suffering from obesity, in the face of a novel infection that is deadly, I can tell them to go on a diet and get some exercise, but will that give me the outcomes that they need to stay safe and that we need to drive down the infection rates? Absolutely not. So right now what we're seeing in the United States is truly a pandemic of unvaccinated people, people who will willfully or a lot of them, most of them, willfully deciding not to get vaccinated, who are now clogging the healthcare um, systems so that other people can't get the care that they need. And so we're seeing a lot of unnecessary death right now. So absolutely, yes. people do need to absolutely like people need to eat well and, and exercise. But when we focus on that, as opposed to more of these structural issues that Raj and I are talking about, we're almost gaslighting the victims of the system where we're blaming them for just not choosing right or doing the right thing when so much is structured around them that makes it impossible to avoid diabetes, obesity. I, I don't think anyone, I don't think we're gaslighting the victims. I think I'm upset with the messaging from the government. I mean, you're speaking to someone who's fully vaccinated and, and takes care of themselves. I, I just wish it's not about infection per se. It's about if you are infected, having the immune resilience, if you're in better shape, you're going to be, you know, in better shape and and the outcomes are not in your favor if you are suffering from comorbidities in your age and you're unvaccinated. That's like the trifecta. If you're unvaccinated and obese and or just like diabetes, that, right. that is not good. Right. And what that's, oh, I totally agree with you. And what I'm saying also is that the you look at the racial disparities of COVID, the people who are dying the most are Native Americans, Black folks and Latino folks in the United States. And that has to do with legacies of historical oppression and what that is doing to the body. So yes, while people should eat well and try to do the most that they can to their to boost their immunity, what we're saying is there's a limit when the social structure is created that basically crushes or preconditions our immunity to a, a pathologic response that's where we need to get in as community immunity, reach across divides that have been created to say, okay, we actually all can't be healthy until we make sure those folks over there are healthy too. And they right. can't be healthy no matter what they eat when you know their land has been stolen from them and they, they've been given no rights on their ancestral so, home. You know, when we talk about social structures, when you say, Raj, the system's rigged, 
what I don't want is someone to listening say, well, the system's rigged. There are these social structures that have been around for thousands of years and, and I'm here today and I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. And yet I know our, I know our audience is smart. They want to help themselves. They want to help others. So at the individual level, what do you want the takeaway to be for those who, who want to make a difference, who, who want to do the right thing, who, who want to really want to change the world and, and make it a better place? Well, I mean, look, I, I'm not saying you know, don't buy organic food or fair trade, right? Because I mean, I buy organic food and I buy fair trade because what, you know, what am I going to do? Buy coffee that is grown with the, the blood of children in it. I mean, you know, unfair trade coffee, please. No, I, I don't want my coffee that bitter. But, I mean, it's important to remember that we do these things not so that we have dis, you know, sort of dispensed our duty, but as promissory notes for us to do more. Because one of the, the stories that we've had throughout our conversation is that it's not enough for us as individuals to just make woke purchasing decisions and then walk away. That's not how health works and that's not how community works. And so it's important for us to, again, to buy organic food so that we don't poison workers. And it's important for us to, to, to think about fairer trade. But the great, I mean, one of the great cons of green consumerism is the belief that we are only individuals. And we're always, we've always been much more than individuals. And of course, that, that gets us back to this idea of Ubuntu that, look, I mean, Apartheid wasn't ended by people shopping smarter. We didn't get civil rights by people picking the right kind of food. It happens through collective organizing. And part of the, the, the sort of mindfulness agenda and, and part, part of the, the agenda of certain kinds of attenuated lifestyle choices are, make us forget that we're more powerful than we think. And so the takeaway for us, I think, is for us to recognize, yes, of course, we do these right things in order to keep our bodies healthy so that we can make sure that everyone's body can be healthy. And luckily, there are movements across the United States that are inviting us to join them in this bigger task of transformation, whether it's movements for the you know, red, black and green New Deal or the, the deep medicine circle that Rupa is the chief instigator of. And I, I you know, very much like to uh, you know, hand it over to you, Rupa, to talk more about that. But there are these organizations that are out there right now thinking about health, not just as the popping of the pill, but as the duties that we have to one another for the rest of our lives. Take it away, Rupa. Deep medicine. Let's hear about it. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say, when we say, oh, this has been going on for thousands of years, what can I do? What Raj and I do in this book is we say, no, this is actually about 600 years. This is not um, inevitable. This is not the way people have always been. This is not how the planet has always humanity. This is the direct outcome of the colonization of the world through European expansion and the expansion of the capitalist economy around the world. And those two things together had a particularly damn outcome to the health of our bodies and the health of our planet. And I share that because it is specific and which means it has specific pressure points that we can exert change at. And it has specific cultural contexts which can be changed through our organizing, through our collective partnering with different people across the globe. And this is already happening. So the Deep Medicine Circle is a nonprofit that we started this year. It's a worker-directed, women of color-led nonprofit between indigenous and non-indigenous people here in occupied Ohlone territory, what's now called the San Francisco Bay. 
And we are redefining a culture of care for what that means for us and how that can impact health of our bodies, health of our societies, our social relationships, and health of the ecosystems where we're working. One of the projects we're doing, we're calling Farming as Medicine. And in that work, we are moving 38 acres to the hands of our Ramatush Ohlone friends. And we are also farming an acre of rooftop, which is the largest rooftop farm on the West Coast. And on both of these sites, our farming is an active care of the soil. And the farmers are being paid as stewards of that soil. So when we Ubuntu, care for the other, we care for ourselves. So through re reawakening that soil microbiology, reawakening that health in the soil, the food that's grown becomes more nutritious and it has, it's then liberated from the market economy. So the farmers aren't being paid per pound of lettuce. That food is then given to those people who are most oppressed by hunger. So in San Francisco, it's the American Indian Cultural District. The Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation are just giving away that organic, delicious food. And then in Oakland, it's going to a pediatric clinic uh, run through UCSF right next door and to Poor Magazine's uh, Radical Redistribution Network in Deep East Oakland. And so we are going to be demonstrating how flipping the food system on its head, removing the food from a for-profit relationship, allows us to care not only for the people, the farmers and the people who receive the food, but also for the earth, the ecosystems, the soil, the water. So we get multiple benefits when we just shift the economic model. And so cities, this kind of model can be replicated all over the country, all over the world, if you want, that people in urban areas can be supported in their peri-urban rural spaces to grow food, to keep everyone at least a base level of uh, nutritional support. So just like we have roads, we pay for our roads, everyone should be able to walk down the street and get a box of organic uh, produce so that no one is in a nutritionally deficient state that we have right now. So you mentioned the ecosystem. There's a fascinating story in the book about the salmon ecosystem. So can you talk about the salmon ecosystem? Okay, well, the salmon nation extends from up by Alaska all the way down to Big Sur. I got to hike up the creek, which is the southernmost extent of their reach, beautiful creek, and the Pacific salmon. And we look at how over you know, the course of a couple decades here, the salmon went from their stories here in the Sacramento Delta when the colonizers first arrived, that the fish were so big, like six feet big and so plentiful that you could walk across the, their backs on the Carquinez Strait, which is where the Sacramento uh, River Delta opens into the bay. And within a couple of years, the colonizers set up nets and just hundreds of thousands of pounds of, of salmon and the fish were decimated. Not only that, but the rivers were dammed. And we see over time how that has impacted the health of the waterways, the health of the forests, because if you look at the Douglas fir trees that grow by salmon creeks, their DNA, their nitrogen is marine nitrogen that's coming from the sea, coming from the ocean. And so when we interviewed Chief Colleen Sisk, who's the Winnemum Wintu chief, uh, who lives at the base of Mount Shasta, her people have been there forever. She was telling us about how when the Europeans came and they killed all the salmon in the Atlantic, they head over to the West Coast to be like, okay, how do we keep the salmon going? And they went to the Winnemum Wintu to ask them about the salmon habits, like how do you breed salmon? How do they spawn and to learn about them? And they learned a couple things and then they left. And Chief Colleen would say they didn't learn about their songs, the songs we sing to them, and they didn't learn how to light their way back the river. And they didn't learn the dances to welcome them back. And what Chief Colleen was speaking to 
was a whole network of relationships of welcoming the salmon and listening to the salmon and being with the salmon and stewarding the salmon. Whereas the scientists who came there to establish the first hatcheries were there just to do a, a scientific spawning in a stainless steel bowl, um, which we describe in the book is pretty violent, is pretty dishonoring of the seven-year journey these amazing creatures are taking to get back into the watershed. And so once those salmon were gone, those ecosystems, so the bear that ate the salmon, the phosphorus that came in that bear poop into the forest, the berries that grew from that poop, berry poop, and had those nutrients in those berries, all of that loses that amazing nutrient cycle that was coming from the ocean brought by the salmon. So as such, they're a keystone species. There's a lot of work happening with California native tribes to bring back the salmon and to stop those waterways, waterworks that are happening that damage those vital arteries um, that are bringing in that powerful nutrition from the ocean back to the It's interesting. I think there are so many parallels. I think it speaks to our myopic view we tend to have, whether it's in healthcare, how we just look at the symptoms and not the root cause, or in this case, just looking, I'm just going in for the salmon and that's it, but I'm ignoring the whole ecosystem. And actually right now, like there's a wild salmon shortage. Like, yeah, you, like a high class problem I have in New York, but the, the iconic Russian daughters there, I can't get wild salmon. It's been out like months. Like there's a wild salmon sh- shortage and we, we've got, you know, I, I think this idea, it speaks to connection. I think it speaks to our ecosystem and it speaks to what we touched on earlier. Our, our planet is angry right now. Yeah, and if you look at the health benefits of wild salmon compared to farm salmon, you see that wild salmon is one of the best anti-inflammatory medicines that nature has given us. And farm salmon, on the other hand, isn't. It doesn't have the same impact. In some cases, it's even pro-inflammatory to eat it. So it just shows how our lack of understanding of how we damage ecosystems ends up having an inflammatory response to systems around us, not just our own bodies. So there's, a, there's this prevalence of this fish inflammatory virus that propagates in farmed fish and it inflames their heart muscle and, and the muscle of their bodies. So it's incredible to me as we were looking in this book, how often inflammation was a sign of damage sign of a vital system being damaged. And in some way, that's great because we have a very clear compass. We have a very clear roadmap that we will know when things are better because inflammation will subside. And that's a beautiful thing to have that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about our ability to heal and also on the flip side, those wounds that never heal? I don't know if I believe in wounds that never heal, but I do believe that there are wounds that are quite deep that we cannot heal alone. There are wounds that are so great that they require all of us to, and those wounds are wounds of colonialism. So our First Nations people, our indigenous communities, they are doing great work, many of them, to do healing projects of reawakening food ways and medicine ways, but truly they can't heal until we all participate in re-correcting and repairing what has been damaged through systems of colonial terror. So if you look here in California, this state is on fire in ways it's never been because it's been mismanaged and because indigenous people aren't in the positions of authority they should be on the lands they've been stewarding for tens of thousands of years. And so our ability to give back power 
to move power back in the hands of people who know how to manage ecosystems, to honor their ways of communicating knowledge and to protect them so they can do the reawakening that they are, so many of them are actively doing right now and support them with resources to do that. That's the work of wounds that are too big for any one of us to heal. And I think that this is gets back at the same thing is that we are at a great opportunity to redefine our connections to each other in ways that can create more robust health systems, more resilient health systems in the face of the shocks that are already here and are going to be coming harder and faster. And that requires building new kinds of relationships together, understanding our immunity is completely dependent on supporting the other. Um, and getting out of the individualistic mindset of juicing and yoga and down into a more participatory involvement in recreating our society along the lines. Of, and so that's, yeah. that's what we're doing with the Deep Medicine Circle. And people can find out about it at deepmedicinecircle.org. And that's the work that so many groups around the country are doing right now, which is very exciting. Yeah, Jason, I mean, as a practical matter, for example, we're, you and I are uh, scarred by the fact that we grew up under patriarchy and that, that we, we're products of patriarchy. We're going to be spending the rest of our lifetimes getting that out of ourselves, right? That's just, that's the work. And we can't do this work in therapy or not in therapy alone. It's also how it is that we are lifted by our our comrades who have suffered under patriarchy. And we talk to them and we are called out on our shit by them and it's uncomfortable and it's not terribly pleasant. But And then at the same time, we grow through that work. And that work makes us better and we will always be doing that work. And that's just, that's, no, and no one's saying, that. no, actually, you know what? We can substitute that work with maybe, you know, we, we can do something else. We have to do that work. There's no going around that. And that's right. We'll just do that forever. And that's fine. That's good. It's good that we spend the rest of our lives liberating ourselves from the shit that we grew up with. And we do that together. And in the same way, there are there are trials of white supremacy. There are trials of class supremacy that we have. You know, we're all fairly privileged folk on this on this podcast right now. We can and should be called out on the privileges that we have by the working poor, by the people in the global south. And that's a that's a good thing. It's not a comfortable thing. But it is part of the medicine that we need, as Rupert is saying, the medicine of creating links that have been sundered, that have been attenuated by, you know, a system that's only 600 years old and that has broken the planet in that short time. And we have even less time to fix it. So, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's going to be good uncomfortable. The, the, you know, the uncomfortable that we live with for the rest of our lives and grow through. So I, I'm going to segue to trauma stress, inflammation, and how they all ladder up to longevity, specifically telomeres, which I'm obsessed with. They're, they're fascinating. Can you give a primer on telomeres? And then we'll segue. In the book, you talk about trauma in childhood can prune telomeres, which is mind-blowing to me. So telomeres, let's go after telomeres. Telomeres are the end caps of the chromosomes of our cells. So our chromosomes contain most of our DNA, genetic material wrapped up in the nucleus. And the telomeres or telomeres, with each replication of a cell, each division of a cell, the telomeres shorten a little bit. And so how much you have on the end of your telomere, how much length you have, is a kind of a biological clock. So that's your cell will divide and lose a little bit of telomere each division. And then when it gets to a certain bit, it just stops. And then it enters senescence. 
or it's the the end of the cells. And what we know now is that telomeres can be shortened through stress, through trauma, and through environmental damage and exposure. And that telomeres that are shortened in that way, those cells, when they enter senescence or arrest, are more likely to develop a pro-inflammatory phenotype called the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. And what we're seeing is that all somatic cells, so these are body cells that are not our germline cells, have the capacity of becoming senescent and then this SASP phenotype. And this SASP phenotype is a inflammation factory, generator of pro-inflammatory molecules in the body. Um, and so the thing about telomeres that was interesting is that not only can they be shortened by stress, they can be elongated by things that are regenerative and nourishing. So this is why I will never say you shouldn't do your meditation. Yes, absolutely. People should take care of themselves. They should do their yoga. They should do the things that bring them solace and peace, but they should not stop there because if the damage is ongoing for communities, that shortening is happening right there and then. Um, unfortunately, right now, the science is not totally one-to-one -one where you can say this shortened telomere causes this disease. And therefore, if we just elongate telomeres, we'll all be fine. It's not like that. But we do see that damage causes telomere shortening. And telomere shortening causes this pro-inflammatory cell type to to just keep pumping out inflammation. And the, these cells, when they happen in the brain, are causing Alzheimer's. When they happen in the pancreas, they're causing diabetes. When they're happening in the kidney, they're causing chronic kidney disease and, and end stage people need to go on hemodialysis. And so it's important to understand what's driving this telomere shortening. We have an overabundance of trauma through our social arrangements, that children are not protected, families are not protected, working class people are not protected. Poor white people that I saw in the hospital, I, I relate a story of a young, of a woman who died uh, and her son who had white supremacist tattoos all over his eyes, who subsequently died, he was not protected. And to understand that this is not a time, even though our politics seeks to divide us of really looking at one another and saying like, how is that poor white family in Alabama being poisoned? How is that trauma that's happening to that family recreating the trauma that's already happened here on the Trail of Tears? How are these things related and how do we start joining across these supposed divisions in this society to overthrow the things that are causing us trauma and re-traumatizing us so that we can build a society based at the center in health and wellness and care? Um, for each other and for the earth around us. And that is ultimately ultimately the goal. Right. So in closing, you, know, you mentioned politics tries to divide us. I think they're doing a good job. However, I'm an optimist. Maybe I'm overly optimistic. I think that I believe in the silent majority, if you will, and that the lion's share of Americans are, are good people. I think we're more alike than we know. I think more like in terms of our, of our belief systems, I think on our ability to love and accept each other, regardless of race, ethnicity, beliefs, politics, et cetera, and that people want to do the right thing. And so with that said, I want to close at a positive note. Where do you want this conversation to be in a year from now? two years from now, building off of this idea that most people are good people, 
most people realize that, look, we've got some hard work, as you mentioned, 600 years. I'm still, I'm like, I can't think back 10 years ago. 600 years to me is still an eternity. It's not thousands, but it's eternity. We've all got some work to do. However, most people are good people. They want to do the right thing. They want, they want to thrive individually. They want to do well by their families. They want to do well by their, by their communities and, and help those who've you know, been disp- disproportionately affected uh, by COVID. There's a lot of inequality out there, obviously. So with all that said, wh- where do you want to see this go? I, mean, I think the work of care can be contagious in a good way, right? I mean, what we're talking about decolonizing, what we're talking about is precisely that spark within us all that is about, you know, that recognizes reciprocity. We're not all these sort of caricatures of what Ayn Rand thought we humans were, just sort of these little sort of succubi of want and greed. We're not like that. We do care for one another. And expanding that community of care is so fulfilling. And that's the good news here that decolonizing is about recognizing acts of harm and repairing them with care. And there's so much hope in that. I I just want to leave it there. We are not succubi of want and greed. Uh, I think it's also this idea that, yeah, I believe in the generosity of of most people on this planet, the goodness of most people on this. And I I think that what we hope to offer in this book is a little bit of an education on history and power, which is absent in the dialogue that we see right now, like with COVID or the disparities or how did these get here? Magic, right? And so what we hope to offer is that in that sharing, in drawing these connections for people, we can start to see today how they are alive in our surroundings and in our body. And through that, we can start restructuring, building new kinds of relationships. And it doesn't have to happen simply on you know, policy levels. It's good for it to happen on a policy level, but it can start happening between individuals and between communities and start building new bridges and building new opportunities to share our gifts with each other. So I, I could see in two years from now, the end of capitalism and the beginning of an economy of care. It'll be beautiful. Well, I don't know if capitalism is going to end. Well, I... I <laughs> it's like war. It'll end if you want it. Yeah, I think it. I think it, the planet is letting us know that it, it can't be supported much longer. I prefer the term conscious capitalism. I think the only consciousness you can have with capitalism is to be conscious of how it's damaging humanity and damaging the planet. And so and I extend to you an invitation to... Imagine, and this is the problem I think with our education, is that we've limited the imagination of people to other possibilities. So you say, okay, well, if you're not going to have capitalism, then you're going to be a flaming red communist, or you're going to be a socialist, or you're going to be, we can't possibly imagine other iterations of economies. And there have been thousands of kinds of economies on planet Earth for thousands of years, as long as there have been human beings. And so it it really is a time to look at the um, damage of capitalism and the possibility of creating economies of care. And those are not capitalist economies, conscious or not. Well, I still prefer conscious capitalism, but point taken. Well, congratulations. I think the book is definitely a thought provoking book, a powerful book and congratulations on Inflame, Deep Medicine, The Anatomy of Injustice. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for reading it so cool. 